0: You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Whenever I was planning to preach this Sunday, knowing that brother Mike was going to be on vacation, I asked him, I said, "Well, what would you like for me to to preach on?" And he said, "Well, just pick something." <laughs> I said, well, I just have the whole Bible before me, you know, it's not really a <laughs> easy choice to make, and so he just kind of started asking me, well, what would you like to preach on? And he asked me, he said, don't you really love Psalm 62? And I said, yes, Psalm 62 is one of my favorites. And he said, well, let's preach on that, so that is what I am preaching on this morning is Psalm 62, and this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and I think you We'll see why once we get into it. But all of us at some point in our lives are going to go through some type of suffering or trial of our faith, and that's what is here in Psalm 62. We will either as believers go through some type of persecution or an illness or a sickness. There's different types of suffering but you have either already experienced this type of trial or suffering, or you may be going through it now. And for some, the thought of suffering, the thought of persecution in the Christian life is very foreign. It's not on their radar. In fact, they think that it's actually wrong to say that a Christian would suffer the way that the Bible says that we will. Very many people think that when they come to Jesus Christ, they will live a very prosperous life. They will have a smooth sailing life. You know, we'll have no struggles. You'll be successful in everything you do, whether it's your job or just life in general. Struggling, what is that, they say? You know, Jesus is supposed to make everything better. Well, I want to show you this morning that The Bible doesn't teach that. And you can in fact look throughout history and Christianity itself tells the story that we will suffer as Christians. The mark of a Christian for centuries, even before Christ, was suffering. You go back to the prophets whenever they went to Israel and were to confront the people of God when they were straying away and they were bringing before them the truth of what God was telling them. They didn't like it. You know, they persecuted the prophets. They killed some of them. Fast forward, you have Jesus that comes on the scene. You would think that the Son of God would get some good treatment. You know, He's just the Almighty Himself in person. But no, He comes and He suffers all the way to the point where He dies on the cross. And then you fast forward some more, and you have the apostles. You have the church being established. And what is it established on? Suffering. People sharing Christ, sharing the faith, and suffering for it. Dying. Being tortured. It's all throughout the Bible. I want you to consider what the Apostle Peter wrote to us long ago. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We must be, as Christians, prepared to suffer. It is sure to come. So this morning, I want to take you to a man who was well acquainted with trials, who was well acquainted with suffering. In Psalm 62, we'll be looking at King David and what he has written for us here. He's the author of this psalm. In Psalm 62, David is writing about being attacked. Now, who the attackers are, we're not sure. The psalm does give us a good hint that they're Israelites. However, because the trials and the sufferings of every Christian will not be the same, the context of this passage and who the attackers are is not what is so important, but rather how we see... David responding and handling this trial is what we want to focus on. The main theme that we're going to see flow through Psalm 62 is that David's trust is in God alone. You can see over and over again just by glancing through the passage that he uses the words alone and only to describe his trust in God. Now, as we go through this psalm, we'll take it by the stanzas that it naturally falls into by the word selah, which occurs after verses 4 and 8. You can see it if you look in your Bibles to the right of the passage after verses 4 and 8. The use of this word is not completely understood. The best thing that we can come up with is that it was to bring about a pause or a musical interlude as it was sung among the congregation because that's how the book of Psalms was originally used. It was the hymn book for the people of God long ago. That's why when you read through the Psalms, it doesn't read like a narrative, like the narrative parts of the Bible. It was written very poetically and so... When we read the Psalms, that's how we are to interpret them in a poetic way. You don't interpret them in the same way other literature, the way we would interpret other types of literature. So I want you to keep those things in mind because they're very important that as we go through this Psalm, it helps us to understand what David is trying to get across to us. So I will read the whole Psalm and then we'll pray together starting with the intro. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Father, I come before you and I ask now that as your word is put before your people and as I stand to preach it, I ask for your help. I ask that you would fill me and help me as I set to explain this wonderful passage of Scripture. Father, I am inadequate, who is adequate to explain the things of God. There is no man. So I ask that you would come and that you would give your people ears to hear this wonderful passage. Help me now. Father, as we look at these things, may we forget ourselves. May I forget myself. And may your word be put on display. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our first stanza, verses 1 through 4. David starts out the Psalm by describing his trust in God. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Now, what we see in this statement and in the statements like this is a picture of what real faith and real trust looks like. David doesn't say God plus something else. He says for God alone. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are trusting in God, plus something else, then we are not trusting God at all. Because for some reason we have said to ourselves that God will not come through for us. He will not hold true to His promises. He will fail. And so we have to have some type of plan B just in case. True faith, on the other hand, says, I know the God of the Bible. I know He keeps His promises. I know He will not fail me. I have no reason to doubt. My trust is in God alone. The other statement I want to point your attention to that we're going to see again is what David says uh, right after for God alone, which is, my soul waits in silence. With this statement, David means he's not like a man that is pacing back and forth wondering if God is going to rescue him. Provide salvation. You may have seen this before in movies or a cartoon where somebody that's anxious or they're worrying, they've either walked a path in the form of a circle or they have, you know, some sort of place where they go and they call it their worry room or whatever where they're constantly pacing back and forth and may have like this. Well, David's not like that. He says, My soul waits in silence. He has an inner peace that only a child of God can know. He knows that God's salvation is sure to come and that it will come on God's time. It's not going to come on David's time. So he waits with his soul, being at peace with whatever situation may come until God brings his salvation. We then see David going on to paint a picture of God by using the words rock, salvation, fortress, And then at the end of verse 2, it's like David says, because of these things, because of who my God is, I will not be greatly shaken. David then moves on from speaking of himself in relation to God to himself in relation to his enemies. So in a way, it's like David is moving from the vertical to the horizontal. He's moving from his relationship with God to now the relationship he has before him with his attackers. But before we get into that, I want to point you again to how David starts this psalm out. He starts with himself in relation to God. And there's a lesson for us here in looking at this. When a trial is before us and we begin to walk through that trial, the first thing we should do, like David, is think on the hope The foundation that we have in God alone. Because only then can you begin to walk through your trial properly. Because it's God who's put the trial before you. You know, God brings suffering. It's not like He, it's out of control. It's not in His hands. Well, Christian, you know, I tried. There's not a whole lot I can do. You're going to be on your own. Just go around. No, that's not true. God puts before His people trials. He puts before His people suffering. Why does He do this? It's not to crush us. It's not to weaken us, but to strengthen our faith. We Earlier in Sunday school, if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. We watched a video about these people that were not believers, and they were questioning the fact of how God can be all-powerful, and all loving, and yet there still be suffering. And we looked at some arguments that they brought before Christianity and why they thought it could not be true. That was one of the things that they brought up, was, you know, why is suffering in the world? And I brought up to the class that very often we use the picture of metal being refined, like silver and gold. You know, they put it in a furnace to refine it, to make it stronger. And so it is with us. It's why we walk through the fire, per se. Because we come out the other side being drawn closer to our Father in heaven. So only then, with that understanding, can we begin to understand why there's suffering in this world and understand how we shall go through it. Let's move on to David and his attackers. He protests in verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? He's showing that their attack has gone on so long that now he feels like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, is how he describes himself. This is how defeated he feels, as if he could be pushed over and destroyed at any moment. He says the attackers only seek his demise. They take pleasure in the falsehood they commit. They're two-faced, he's saying. They bless David with their mouths, but inwardly they curse him, attempting to deceive him. Now, in light of verses 1 and 2, what we've been talking about, what David lays before us, his foundation, waiting on God alone, waiting in silence, are you a little surprised to see David now describe himself like this in verse 3? Talking about defeat calling himself a leaning wall, a tottering fence. What David is doing here, is it wrong? Is it wrong for him to talk like this? And is it wrong for a believer to feel this way, to speak of defeat? Now, I want to give my answer very carefully because it can be very misunderstood and I don't want somebody to walk out of here and get the wrong impression, well, the preacher told me this. I do not believe it is wrong to feel this way, to speak like this that David does in verse 3. However, I do believe it is wrong to stay like this, to accept the fact that things are just going to be this way, to walk around and like have your head held low and having a thinking, a mindset like, well, suffering is just a part of this world. God brings suffering and I'm just going to accept it. I'm not going to have joy in this life until Christ comes back and I'm in heaven. That's just the way things are. And Well, that's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches and a Christian should not live that way. If you meet a Christian and he's very depressed all the time, then he really needs to consider the truths of God's Word and what he says about suffering. Let's look in our second stanza, verses 5-8, through and see what David does. After he has complained of his attackers, he doesn't stay there and wallow in self-pity like what we're talking about. He doesn't say, oh, poor pitiful me, for the rest of Psalm 62. No, David launches back into the hope that he began with and he adds to it. One thing that David does differently here, though, than the first stanza is how he begins the second stanza. So look at the second stanza versus the first one. In the first stanza, David is putting before us what his hope is in. He's making a statement. In verse 5, David is speaking directly to himself. After reflecting on his attackers, David, you could say, begins to preach to himself. He begins to preach what he started out with. The foundation of resting in God alone and waiting in Him in silence. Waiting on Him in silence. He reminds himself to wait on God and reminds himself of why he must because God keeps His promises and will not fail. Now, verses 5-7 through seven are... These, this is the passage that Eddie read earlier during the offering. These passages are my favorite in this psalm because of where it's at in the psalm. David has talked about his relationship with his attackers, and then he launches back into this. And I want to read these verses again. I want you to have that in your mind as I read it. This is David preaching to himself. Starting at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. This is what he's telling himself. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And in these three verses, verse seven is probably one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. This verse has served me well in my own sufferings as I've walked through the Christian life, as I had, as I have had my own trials. I have found myself coming here more than I have anywhere else because of the words David uses in verse seven. He says, on God rest my salvation, and he says, on God rest my glory. That word glory means David is talking about his Dignity, His honor, who He is, His reputation. So although these attackers seek to defeat Him, they seek His destruction, whatever it is, however they're attacking Him, it doesn't matter. Because who He is does not rest on what they think of Him or what they can do to Him. It rests on God alone. And so it is with us. In the Christian life, whenever we are attacked, whether it be in the form of persecution or torture or death or whatever it may be, it does not matter what the world calls you, thinks of you, does to you, because your fate, your reputation, your honor, your glory does not rest on man, but it rests in God and in God alone. As we come to verse 8, you can see another turning point as David now sets to implore the whole congregation and teaches them what he has reflected on. He exhorts us to trust in God at all times and to pour our hearts out before Him. Oh, believer, this is what prayer should look like in the Christian life. When we go before our Father in heaven, it should look like us pouring our hearts out before Him. This means that when we go before the Father to pray, we don't just mumble a few words. We don't just recite some prayer that we have memorized. I can remember whenever I was younger and I was not a Christian, I was not a believer. I may have been deceived and thought I was because I was raised in a Christian family or what have you. But before I would eat, I would recite the prayer, God is good, God is great, by His hands we are fed, give us now our daily bread, amen. And then I would proceed to eat my food. But when I said that prayer, I would say it in record time, because I really wanted to eat. And all I wanted to do was check that prayer off my to-do list in a way. So the prayer is not what really mattered. It was just in my way so I could really do what I wanted to do, and that was to eat. So I just did it just to do it. And prayer should not be like that for the Christian. When you go before your Father in heaven, I mean, Christ bought this for you. He paid the price so that we can go before the throne of God. David means to show us that it should look like Us laying our hearts bare before our Father in heaven because He's our refuge, as He says. He says, God is a refuge for us. So what does it look like whenever we pray? Does it look like we're going before our refuge, our fortress, our rock? Or do we just mumble a few words so we can hurry up and get amongst the things we really want to do? In our last stanza, verses 9-12, through in verses 9 through 10, David puts before us the opposite of trusting God, which is trusting the things of the world. He puts all people, including his attackers, on level ground. None are greater than the other, he says. They all go up in the balances and are together lighter than a breath. David then speaks on the temptation we have to make money our hope, and if it is, is our hope to get it any way we can, even by extortion or robbery. But then he says, but money as a hope is a hope that is in vain. And not just money, not just what is mentioned here, anything that we are hoping in besides God is a hope that is in vain. Whatever we decide to put our hope in besides God, whether it be are, it could be your spouse, it could be your husband, your wife, it could be your family. It can be a relationship, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It could be your health insurance. It could be your retirement. It could be many things. But what David is showing us is that all of these things are in vain. In the end, they will ultimately fail you. Hope in God alone these things are in vain. And that is ultimately what sin is. You know, it puts before us this great promise that it's going to hold out this great pleasure. It's going to satisfy us, but yet it doesn't. Very often it leaves us lying in the dirt, so to speak, dragging us along with a rope. Is that, If you could picture sin and what it does to somebody, you could put that in your mind. That's I think a good picture it's dragging somebody along speaking good promises to them but ultimately it's just going to drag them into the grave and them liking it in the process because they believe these deceitful promises in verses 11 and 12 David moves on to summarize the psalm with two great truths that he's learned from his reflection on God and his situation that we've been looking at The first thing David says is that power belongs to God. And second, he says that to God belongs steadfast love. These two truths hold Psalm 62 together, and they hold the Bible together, in fact. Without these two truths, you and I could never experience salvation. Because if God lacks one of these, He will either not want to save us because He doesn't love us with a steadfast covenant-keeping love, or, on the other hand, He will not have the power to save us even though He loves us. So, they must be together. The whole Bible is hinged on these truths. If you take one away, everything crumbles to the ground. Now, I want you to look again before I move on to the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12 where David is describing these things and how they belong to God. He says, Power belongs to God. And then in verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Powerful and loving not only describe God. All power and All love are his. He owns it. I picture, when I was reading through this passage, I picture a powerful king or a powerful ruler, you know, boasting in his might that he has. Okay? Well, my God owns power. He owns love. These characteristics don't merely define God. The purest love, the purest power that you can think of, it flows from Him. You know, we very often speak of creation in that if God was taken out of the picture, everything would just collapse. You would have a big ball of nothing, an empty space. Because in the beginning, God breathed and everything came to be. He spoke and everything came into existence. So that's how it is with David describing God here. These things belong to Him. They derive their meaning from God. And we as Christians, oh, we need to think on this. We need to ponder our God. And in light of His Word, because if we are not meditating on God and His Word, then we will never truly understand who He is and how He reveals Himself. Let's finally move down to the second part of verse 12, where David concludes by saying that God will render to a man according to his work. When I first came to this part of Psalm 62, I could not understand why David puts this here. I mean, it's like he's going so good. He says that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then you have, for you will render to a man according to his word. What is up with that? I thought to myself, David, why would you put this here? I don't understand. And he closes the psalm out with it. So, as I thought to just try to understand why this is here, I was reminded of the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, when God reveals Himself to Moses. I want you to listen to how the Lord revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34. It reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The reason why that statement is there is because, let's say David didn't put that there. Let's say he ends the psalm with, in that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That would be very true. David would not be lying but he would only be telling a half-truth. Because God is not only a God of love, a God of power, He is also a God of justice. And that's how He revealed Himself to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Now, we as a church family went through a sermon series a while back on this passage. Some of you may remember. We looked at how after God had revealed Himself in this way, it was foundational for His people. And that's why we see it spread throughout all of the Bible after that scene on the mountain. That's why it's not only in this psalm, but in very many psalms. David speaking of steadfast love. He understands God in this way because of that passage, because God revealed Himself in that way. So that's why it's here at the end of Psalm 62. If you leave out God's justice, then you have not completely understood who God is. He's not just a God of love, He's also a God of justice. He will render to a man according to His work. Now, in the end, God will pour out a steadfast love on all those who know His Son, Jesus Christ. He will welcome them into His kingdom gladly. But for those who do not know Christ, who do not know the Son, He will rain His justice upon their heads. They will suffer His wrath for all eternity. You must keep those together. If you preach God to somebody and you just say God is a God of steadfast love and you leave out justice, you have told a half-truth, not the whole truth because this is how the Bible describes God. This is how He will come. He will rescue those that know Him, those that are His, and He will bring wrath upon those that do not. So I want to ask you, do you know this Jesus? Are you trusting in Him alone? Because ultimately Psalm 62 points us to Christ. Because all the promises of God find their yes in him that statement comes from second corinthians chapter 1 Jesus is the rock on which we stand he is our hope jesus is our fortress jesus is our refuge jesus is our salvation jesus is the one whom our souls wait for in silence this psalm ultimately points us Him. So do you know this Jesus? Are you trusting in Him alone? If you are, then think on these promises because they're yours in Christ. Preach them to yourself. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Think on them. Hold them close, O Christian, because Christ died for you to have them. Do not think lightly on the promises of God that we have here. There's nothing worse than a Christian that never reads this book, that does not know the hope that God has set before him. If you go home and just set this Bible down on your shelf and it collects dust until next Sunday, then you are not meditating on the promises of God's Word. And you will not ever be filled with the joy, the hope, that you see here that David preached to himself. This only comes from a person that has immersed themselves in His Word, the promises that He has set before Him. So please do not take the promises of God lightly. Now, for the person that does not know Jesus, the person that does not know Christ, the promises that are in God's Word are not... For you. If you do not know Jesus, the promises of God are not yours. But they can be. They can be yours. Jesus has His arms open wide to every sinner who would come to Him and cry out for salvation. Save me, O Lord. He will not turn them away. So cry out to Him if you have not. Cry out to Him, O sinner, because the arms of Christ will not always be stretched out. He will not always stand as this. For when He comes back at the end of the age, He will not come to receive sinners. He will come to bring His justice. Now, He will take those that are His. He will take the ones that know Him into His kingdom. But for the ones that do not know Him, there's no second chance. Jesus comes in the end, as Revelation describes Him, with eyes of flames of fire and a sword coming out of His mouth to destroy all those who have forsaken Him. So I ask, don't take those truths lightly because the Bible doesn't. And I'm definitely not going to stand up here and preach them to you in a light way. Very often people will do that. I've seen videos of that junk. It's what it is. People who take lightly the truth of hell and God's wrath and the justice that He will bring on all those that don't know Him. I'm not going to do that. You may not like it. You may not want to hear it. But the Bible takes it serious. And I'm going to take it serious. And I pray you take it serious. Because I want you to cry out to Christ for salvation. Oh, person, if you do not know Jesus, oh, you have not experienced life, please cry out to Him. He will not turn you away. Consider Him. Call upon His name today. He will not turn you away. And again, for believer, for Christian, suffering, going through trials, if you have woken up this morning and it was just hard to get out of the bed, you know, I have those mornings when you wake up and it just seems like life doesn't have a purpose. You wake up and you just kind of go through the motions just so you can do something because, you know, if you lay in the bed for too long, you start feeling bad. Your back hurts, so you have to get up and do something, but you would rather not want to. When you feel like that, when you feel like the world is just crushing down on you, do like David does. Preach the hope, the promises of God to yourself. That's why they're here. That's why they were written written down for you, for me think on them, to constantly be calling them to mind, to be memorizing them, to be holding them close in your heart, because that's what they can't take away. Somebody can take this book away from you. They did to many Christians long ago. They took the Word of God from them, from their hands, per se. But they did not take it out of their hearts. So, are you reading God's Word like this? Are you preaching it to your heart and holding it close there. That when all seems lost, you can call to your mind the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we have looked at Psalm 62 and seen the marvelous promises that are set before us, I pray that no believer would take lightly the things that are before them, And not only in Psalm 62, but in all of the Bible. These promises are huge. These are what we stand on, what gets us through each day. We know that You bring suffering into our lives, that You are in control of them. We know that things do not come to us without passing through Your hands first. But Father, suffering is hard. We all understand this. It's very hard to be persecuted for our faith, to be ill, as so many of our church family are ill now. In hospitals, seeming like life may come to an end soon. I don't know, but that's why Your promises are before us, and that's why You command us to preach them to ourselves. And I pray that's what we would do. And for the person that may be here, I do not know their hearts, But if they do not know Christ, if they care nothing for Him, I pray that they would consider the curses that You lay out before them in Your Word, how serious they are. May no man, may no woman walk away and think lightly of Your Word. Father, we thank You for Your mercy, we thank You for Your grace, and ultimately we thank You for Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.